When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions, as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bethantha and Teresh, two of the king's officers were guarding, who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were hanged on a gallows. All this was recorded in the Book of Annals in the presence of the king. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamatha and Agathite. And I can't get those names right, so good luck. Elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman. For the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore, they told Haman about it, to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet, having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, they cast the pur, that is the lot, in the presence of Haman to select a day and month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom, whose customs are different from those of all other people, and who do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will put 10,000 talents of silver in the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Matha and Agathite, an enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Then on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces, and the nobles of the various peoples. These were, the, these were written in the names of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and little children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready for that day. 
Spurred on by the king's command, the couriers went out, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was bewildered. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Steve. Well, second weekend, we're continuing to discover that Esther is unlike any other Old Testament writing. As we just talked about last week, it's a book that lacks any explicit reference to God in its whole story. In fact, there's so much tension that's been associated with this book that when the story of Esther was translated from Hebrew into Greek, additional chapters were added. You can still find those added chapters if you have a Catholic or Eastern Orthodox translation of your Bible. And if we were to open up and read those apocryphal editions, we would encounter lengthy, lengthy prayers coming from the mouths of Esther and Mordecai, as well as the deliverance of the Jews under the Persian Empire being repeatedly attributed to the Lord. Now, on the one hand, I don't know about you, but for me, these additions are understandable. We prefer, I think, to see rather than sense God's presence in our lives. Evidence of the Lord's involvement is easier to believe when we can point to it concretely, in black and white, rather than in shades of gray. But as the scriptures continually remind us, if only the Lord worked according to our preferences. God's ways are not our ways. Our relationship, our journey with this God, with our Father, is one that's built on faith. In other words, what I'm trying to say to you this morning is that if we negate the questions, if we remove the mystery, if we add chapters so as to reshape the story to our own liking, we are no longer worshiping the God of Revelation. We are worshiping a God of our own making. But on the other hand, and that's what I hope as we continue to go through Esther, we will discover. On the other hand, if we receive Esther's story just as it's been given to us, we will gain a perspective that can only serve to increase and deepen our reliance upon the Lord. So this morning, let's recap the story thus far and let's see where these chapters that we've heard take us in that regard. More than seven years have passed from chapter one to where we are. And in that time, King Xerxes, who you heard about, rules over the Persian Empire and has exiled his first wife, Vashti. And she, he was, she was exiled for refusing his command. And he also has suffered two humiliating losses in trying to invade Greece, something we don't know from Scripture, but we know from history. And in the aftermath of both of these things, he's conscripted somewhere between 400 and 1,400 virgins throughout the empire. Esther's often told as if this was a beauty contest, and I told you last week, it's anything but a beauty contest. It's slavery. 400 to 1,400 virgins throughout the empire are forcibly taken to be a part of his harem in order for him to find a new queen. And that new queen turns out to be Esther. Esther, we're told, is very beautiful, but she's also a Jew. Now, Xerxes' grandfather had allowed the Jews to return to their homeland nearly 50 years ago, but as we come to this story, many Jews, like Esther, have decided to stay where they are. And where they're staying, in this case, is Susan, modern-day Iran. Esther has concealed her identity, her nationality, her heritage, in becoming Xerxes' new queen. Instead, as we looked last week, she's used her looks, she's worked the system rather than be true to her own identity. And she probably credits that for her being where she is. And somewhere after her coronation takes place, somewhat time later, the story, as we get to it this morning, takes its first twist, the first of many. And we're introduced to two plots and to two men. 
The first man that we're introduced to in a more formal way is Mordecai, Uncle Morty. You'll recall that he's Esther's uncle. We find Mordecai sitting at the king's gate, which is a very, very telling statement. It indicates to us that he's got an official position of authority in the court. And more than likely, he's sitting at the gate doing his job, but also waiting for news from his niece Esther. To, and in the midst of waiting to hear news from his niece, he actually hears news of a dramatically different kind, as you heard. This is plot twist number one. Two of the palace's court officers have become angry, and they're scheming to assassinate the king. As Mordecai learns about this murderous plot, he brings it to the attention of Queen Esther, we're told, who then warns the king, but also gives credit to Mordecai. The assassins are uncovered and properly executed. All the events are recorded in the official records. But the one thing that doesn't happen, the only thing that's missing, is that there's no reward given to Mordecai. The king's life is saved. The entire event is properly recorded, as you heard, in the annals of the historical record, and then it's seemingly promptly forgotten. Why doesn't King Xerxes reward the man who saved his life? We don't know. And as I told you throughout Esther, there's lots of things that we're not told by the narrator. We're just kind of left there. We don't know. Maybe nothing happened because back then plots to kill the king were a dime a dozen. We don't know. This strangely unresolved situation, as you heard it, concludes chapter 2 and leads us into the introduction of our second man. We are introduced to a man named Haman, who has just become the king's chief of staff. Haman has been given a position higher than all the other nobles, and by the king's command, everyone is supposed to bow down whenever he passes by. And everyone does, except for old Uncle Morty. This results in our second plot twist. The little we can gather of why Mordecai refuses to bow down before Haman, the little we can gather, and it's not explicitly there, has something to do with his being Jewish. We can speculate that probably being a Jew, Mordecai refused to bow down to worship before anyone other than God alone. And this includes Haman. Either way, as the royal officials report Mordecai's behavior, and then as Haman personally witnesses Mordecai's refusal to kneel down or pay him honor, Haman becomes furious. We're told that when Haman found out that Mordecai was a Jew, he decided not just to get his revenge on Mordecai, but on all of Mordecai's people, all of the Jews. Now, a little background here might be helpful to understand what would turn a man in his anger to such a genocidal rage. And the background is, you may have caught it, the narrator of the story informs us that Haman was an Agagite. Agagite. Now, you might, that might not have any meaning to you, but if you were to go back to 1 Samuel, we will read a story in 1 Samuel, a time when God told King Saul to kill all of the Amalekites, these longtime enemies of Israel. And long story short, without getting into all of it, King Saul, for self-serving reasons, disobeys that command and keeps the king of the Amalekites alive. His name, King Agag. The prophet Samuel later kills King Agag, but this incident was never forgotten by the king's ancestors, the Agagites. And so all these decades later, the Agagites carry a deep-seated hatred for the Jews. The first part of Haman, Haman's plan, as you heard it, involves finding a good date, a lucky one, to annihilate the Jews. And being a superstitious man, Haman casts lots. We hear that referenced a lot in the Bible. He casts lots, and it's basically like reading the astrology column in order to find out what you're supposed to do tomorrow. 
The only difference is it involves rolling some dice. And the date that he comes up with for his murderous plan falls, we're told, on the 12th month. With that date set, 11 months time, Haman heads off to see King Xerxes in order to hatch the second and final part of his plan, his false accusation against the Jews. I don't know if you caught it, if it's there in front of you to see it again in Steve's reading, if you caught how the narrator describes this. Notice that when Haman goes before King Xerxes, he never mentions the Jews by name. There are eerie echoes of what takes place here of this being repeated throughout the history of the Jewish people. He tells Xerxes that a certain people scattered in the provinces have customs different from all the other people. And at first, if we're reading along, we think, so what? No big deal, right? I mean, if you think about it, after all, the Persian Empire is made up of a myriad of different people groups who have either been conquered or brought as captives into the kingdom. And up to this point in the story, it seems like their customs and their religions were tolerated. But what's key is what Haman does next. Haman tells the big lie. Xerxes is told that these certain people do not obey the king's laws. Notice, by the way, that Haman isn't very specific about what laws they didn't obey. Then Haman tells Xerxes, you know, it's really not in your best interest to tolerate these certain people. He paints a pretty superficial picture in terms of their danger to the kingdom, but that doesn't stop him from daring to ask to destroy a whole people group, to which he adds the clincher. Let me take care of this for you, and I'll pay 10,000 talents, that's roughly 375 tons of silver, into the royal treasury to get, pay for the job of getting this done. This isn't much of a story that he's telling the king. I, from face value as we read it, it sounds a little odd. So why doesn't the king ask any questions? Why didn't Xerxes ask for more specifics? Why didn't the king ask why Haman was willing to pay such a fortune to get rid of hundreds of thousands of people. Why not have the whole matter investigated? Again, we don't know. We're left with only two options, I think. Either Xerxes really trusted Haman, or else it didn't take much to fool this king. Xerxes agrees to the plan. He tells Haman to keep his money and then gives Haman his signet ring, basically the authority for Haman to act on the king's behalf. And just like that, the machinery of the empire is set in motion. Decrees are decreed, letters are written and mailed to all the minor functionaries and regional governments. On a certain day, in a certain month, you heard it, all the Jews, men, women, children, young and old, would be slaughtered, annihilated, wiped off the face of the Persian Empire. And perhaps the most haunting part of all of what we heard read this morning is at the very, very end. I don't know if you caught it. After all this was decreed, after all these kingly plans were set in motion, as this chapter finishes, we're told that Haman and King Xerxes went out for a beer. As Haman and King Xerxes go out for a drink, we're also told the city of Susa was bewildered. There's confusion. Everyone is wondering including us at this point in the story, not knowing the rest, what just happened? Everyone's trying to work out what's going on. Beloved, as the story of Esther continues, and it gets pretty heavy, we continue to be challenged in this story by the mystery of God's providence. And last week I defined to you providence as being the continual working of the Lord for us in the midst of our everyday lives and decisions. Providence being something that's hard for us to recognize. 
But by this point in the story, what I want to suggest to us this morning, by this point in the story, we're beginning to gain some insight on how to recognize the Lord's presence in the midst of things even when we don't otherwise see him. And in this story, all we have to do is notice the extraordinary number of coincidences thus far. Allow me to review. Now, just by coincidence, there was a Jew named Mordecai on the king's payroll who just by coincidence had a niece named Esther who just by coincidence was so fair and beautiful that out of somewhere between 400 and 1,400 other virgins was selected to be the next queen of the Persian Empire. Not long after that, two of the king's servants hatched a plot to kill him. And by the merest of coincidences, Esther's uncle, Mordecai, heard about the plot and sent word to the queen, and she told Xerxes, and the plot was foiled. Was it by chance that Esther was taken into the harem? Was it by chance that Mordecai happened to be at the city gate to overhear the plot at the exact right time? But the story goes on, an Amalekite, an Amalekite of all people, an Amalekite named Haman, coincidentally, has been named the king's chief advisor. In his desire for vengeance, not only against Mordecai, but all the Jewish people, he tries to discern the luckiest date to launch his murderous plan. Was it by chance, and I don't even know if you saw this in the text, was it by chance that Haman's rolling the dice on the first month, the first month of Nisan? You may go, huh? If you go back to Exodus chapter 12, what I'm going to ask you to notice in Exodus chapter 12 with what's here in Esther chapter 3, verse 7, is that Haman is rolling the dice. Haman is taking his chances during the month of Passover. Was it by chance that Haman is seeking guidance for his campaign of genocide during the very same month that celebrates another great empire's complete failure and total downfall and trying to do the, exactly the same thing to the Jews centuries earlier? And as we move ahead in the story, and I'm going to jump ahead a little bit for you so you can appreciate it when we get there. As we move ahead in the story, the coincidences just keep on piling up. Later on, a coincidental bout of insomnia will cause King Xerxes to be unable to sleep. And don't you know when you can't sleep, nothing is better to do than read the official court record. And coincidentally, he will remember that he failed to reward Mordecai in saving his life, in breaking up the attempted assassination. Will it be by chance that the king will be planning Mordecai's exultation, his praise before all the people, at the very same moment that Haman is planning Mordecai's execution on the gallows? Later, when Haman recognizes his terrible mistake, when he realizes that what he didn't know, that the king's queen, Esther, is Jewish, he will end up being hung on the very gallows he prepared for Mordecai. Will it be by chance that King Xerxes comes into the room at the one moment when it looks like Haman is seducing the queen, when he's really pleading his case before Esther? Of course, these could all be coincidences. Maybe, maybe Mordecai is just kidding himself, which we'll get to next week in chapter 4. Maybe Mordecai is just kidding himself when he tells Esther that she's come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Maybe it's all just chance. If so we are left with a choice. If it's all just chance, we're left with a choice. Either God does not exist or God does not intervene. And that could be true. But beloved, what I'm here to say to you this morning, then again, is that it takes as much faith to believe that all these things are just coincidences 
as it does to believe that God was working in the midst of the actions of Xerxes, Esther, Haman, and Mordecai. We live in a world that doesn't know our God. And when this world doesn't know our Lord, what it tends to do is make a God out of coincidence. We all know the drill. Let me give you two quick examples. You know, more and more people are believing that just by chance, the right conditions happen for life to begin. Wouldn't you know it? Just by chance, the right conditions happen for life to begin. Over a period of time, certain mutations just happen to occur coincidentally at the same time so that the opposite gender of the same mutation also happened to appear. And suddenly, coincidentally, male and female of the same species were created. How about that? Let me give you an even smaller example. After a series of, of frankly, unforgettable presidents of the United States, a strong man was elected coincidentally at the same time that a civil war was about to rage in our nation. We can look throughout our history. We can look throughout the history of the world. And again, we can see throughout our birth, our struggle, our endurance as a nation alone, just by chance, the right man or the right woman happens to be at the right place at the right time. We are convinced, we are told that everything we see and know is supposed to be a result of a long chain of coincidences. But people of faith know better. People of faith know better. If we believe in providence, if we believe that the Lord is continually at work behind the scenes, then the things that happen in our lives are more than just coincidences. More often than we dare to realize, more often perhaps than we're willing to admit. Beloved, another way to say this is coincidence is nothing more than the non-believer's word for providence. Coincidence is nothing more than the non-believer's word for providence. God's hand in this story, in our lives, in our world, is clearly visible. There are signs of his influence, his reign, if only we would recognize them. This is a truism, not just for the book of Esther, but one also for our lives. But it begs, it begs the question, as we continue to wrestle with providence, we ask, but how? How? How are we to better understand divine providence? Go with me on this. My son, Ethan, is exceptional at video games. You can give him a game, and he'll beat it by the end of the day. In fact, some time ago, a couple years back, he discovered there's another way to beat a game. And if you're not familiar with video games, the other way to beat a game is called cheat codes. Push a few buttons in the right order, and before you know it, the character you're playing with can run through walls and becomes invincible. Of course, as I've tried to teach him, play like that, and it doesn't prove that you're a true master of the game. Now, one way to understand our world and our lives is that God created a system for this video game that we're a part of, and it's called the laws of nature. In fact, the, God did such a good job that people sometimes actually believe the system runs itself. Some people actually worship the system. I mean, you have people who are like, well, it's very, very clear predictability. The weather will influence the crops, and the stock market affects our, our finances. Our lifestyle is impacted by our state of our health. And so many, many people get caught up in the beauty of the system and worship the system. Now, the laws of nature, for example, say, the laws of nature, I'll give you an example of how it works. The laws of nature say that if you're surrounded by the world's greatest army on one side and the Red Sea on the other, then there's no hope. Game over. But we know better. We celebrate something better than that. We realize that God, not the system that he created, is in control. Again, though, the question is, 
How? Well, one way is overriding the system. The laws of nature say that a sea must flow. Well, no problem for God. Today that won't be going on. The laws of nature say that the sun has to set. Well, in the story of Joshua, no problem. God will override that for a few hours. In other words, the classic miracle, the things that we've learned about in Sunday school, the things that we're like, oh, why can't we see those, are the cheat codes. They're showing us that God's not limited by the laws of nature. But Esther, and it's not just Esther, but Esther is a profound and poignant example of this. Esther is in our Bible because it's showing us that there's another way where the system doesn't have to be changed. No cheat codes. You can play by the rules and still find a way to win. That's the story of Esther. A cascade of perfectly natural events unfold and God accomplishes his purpose without any natural laws being broken. Vashti was ousted. Esther was chosen. Mordecai overheard a plot. Xerxes couldn't sleep. Esther found favor in the eyes of the king. Haman is disgraced and hung on the very gallows intended for Mordecai. The day designated for the destruction of the entire Jewish people becomes their new national holiday. That's providence. Providence, as revealed through the story of Esther, providence is not about one specific event. One way to understand providence is providence is about the way all the details come together in the end. Providence demonstrates for us that in the midst of this beautiful system that God's created, that in the midst of all of these laws of apparent cause and effect, they are nothing more than another tool in the hands of our God. Not only is God not limited by the rules that he's made, God's not even limited by their logic, which he made as well. He can use them to get whatever he wants, and it will still all look perfectly natural. And what I want to suggest to you as we gravitate more towards the cheat codes, as we want more of the miracles, that this, what Esther is proclaiming to us, providence, the reality of God's ability to work within the rules and beyond the logic that he's put in, into the system, this is far more relevant to the lives that we live. This is a much deeper expression of God's power than what we often think. Esther is a beautiful story. Through it, it's beautiful because we see life as we know it, as we experience it. We see it, we see in that story how God typically reveals himself to us. Because this is not a story that's simply about the virtues of people who saved the Jews from genocide. That's a really superficial reading of this story. This is a story that's about the ability of God to accomplish his will despite our flaws and foibles as his people. It's, about, it's a story that's about eliminating, frankly, coincidence as a part of our Christian vocabulary. It's about recognizing that random processes are really anything but random in our lives. That nature is just God's way of managing the details without showing off. It's about understanding providence. It's about understanding God's perfect work through imperfect people. And so how do we interact? How do we recognize God's providence? What Esther shows us is that providence is realizing that life is about a constant dialogue with God. On the one hand, the Lord leaves us free with our free choice to believe or not or to achieve or not. And we're going to come into that next week in chapter 4. But on the other hand, what we're beginning to see leading up to chapter 4 is that every little event is part of an interactive master plan that has its own purpose and logic. 
The Lord responds to our every move, subtly adjusting a world of outcomes in accordance with how close we are to the center of his character and will. His footprints, his fingerprints are everywhere, and yet, sadly, most of us don't notice. Little things happen in the ordinary events of our days, and we just rush ahead blindly. We live our lives, even believers, people who believe that God exists, that God is at work. We live our lives as as though events are disconnected, as if God is passively watching us and keeping score maybe somewhere above on cloud nine. While we, meanwhile, bounce around in the real world in the pinball game of life, hoping not to fall between the flippers. But that's not how our world, how our lives, how our God works at all. Scripture says in declaring the providence of God, it doesn't tell us to immediately try to understand everything that happens to us. As I'm trying to unpack providence for you, it's not about trying to immediately understand everything that happens to us. But what stories like Esther are seeking to do is to awaken our sensibility to notice the Lord in the ordinary, seemingly mundane moments of our lives. Every day, little things take place within our larger vision and plan at the time. Our lives every day intersect intersect with seemingly random people, but such moments pass by without a second thought. We may even in those moments get a slight impulse. You know, the hairs raise on the back of your neck, and we might go, that's weird, but we quickly move on. Sometimes things do just happen. But beloved, if we believe in God's providence, if we believe that God is constantly at work behind the scenes, and if we believe in the reality of sin, and the reality of sin being how easily and frequently we are so narrowly focused on our own agenda, then providence in the midst of sin is about learning to pay attention, to stop and consider when the unexpected occurs. What I'm commending to all of us this morning through the story of Esther. What I'm commending that we do is experience a paradigm shift. What I'm commending is that we put on a different set of glasses, that we begin to see things differently. What I'm commending is that we not just believe in this doctrine of providence, but we discover how we can live in the midst of the reality of God's providence. And here's the shift. It's this simple. Here's the shift, okay? The shift is this, and I know I'm not alone in this. The shift is, each day, instead of sighing, grumbling, or shrugging away those delays in our schedule and those distractions from our focus, instead of perceiving them as interruptions in the midst of our agenda, let's just consider, let's just be open to the possibility that those disruptions might be more than just a coincidence. Might be more than just a coincidence. Again, I'm not saying to you, and I don't want you to hear this, I'm not saying that in stopping that we will always see God or that we will immediately recognize the significance of the hiccups that take place in our lives. But what I am saying is that sometimes in the thick of entering into those moments of supposed randomness, what I am saying is that oftentimes in the aftermath, we will glimpse the veil of heaven intersecting the earth through us. Now, let's be really clear, because oftentimes when we talk about providence and we talk about Esther's story, we got some bad theology, and it's so bad that many of us preach it to each other, even though it's not what Scripture says. And what you might take away from what I've just said that I have to correct for you now is I am not saying, emphasize not, capital N-O-T, underline, bold not, saying, I am not saying that everything happens for a reason. 
I am not saying that everything happens for a reason. And you need to hear that because many of you have said that to people who really don't need to hear that at the wrong moments of their life. Scripture doesn't say that everything happens for a reason. Because we've already seen in Esther that there's lots of things that happen that weren't what God wanted. Sexual slavery is not God's reason. Everything doesn't happen for a reason. And when we try to make providence that, that this equals that, we eliminate the mystery of providence. There's no mystery to providence. It makes us feel better, but it takes away the mystery of what we're talking about here. Remember what I said earlier. Providence is about a perfect God working through imperfect people. So everything doesn't always happen for a reason because there's a lot of imperfect people doing stuff. What providence does mean is that God works out his reasons through everything. Everything doesn't happen for a reason, but God works out his reasons through everything. Subtle, but significant. So what I'm saying to you, brothers and sisters in Christ, is these coincidences in our lives are oftentimes anything but they are oftentimes in our lives the Lord's primary way of revealing that he's in control. They are often the primary way so many of us don't experience God, want to see God. It's oftentimes in the interruptions that God is revealing himself, teaching us. I have permission to share this story. Some of your children right now are being taught by my wife, who's the director of children's ministries, in Bible adventures. In preparing for the rotation that she's teaching today, she had a lesson all planned out all planned out, had supplies that she needed. Those supplies, however, were ordered, and in order for this lesson to take place, the delivery needed to come by UPS on Friday. Now, in order to ensure that she had all of the things she needed to execute her plan, my wife even did the extra measure of leaving a sign outside where the UPS comes to say, if no one's here, please leave the package, it's fine. You know where I'm going with this story. Friday comes, UPS comes, and they don't deliver. And my wife doesn't find out about this till Saturday, so it gets worse because when she calls UPS on Saturday and says, hey, I really need that package. Can I come and pick it up? They say, I'm sorry, you didn't call before 7 o'clock yesterday, so you can't pick it up today. Yes, it's here, but we're not ready for you, so you can't come and get it. Let me just say that yesterday in my house was not a fun time. Let's just say that UPS, if you work for them, I love you, but UPS was not lauded in my house yesterday. <laughs> my wife had a plan. My wife needed supplies. This lesson wasn't going to happen. What was she supposed to do? Let me also just give, and I've given it before, but it bears repeating a little bit of brief marital advice. In these moments when this happens, don't try to fix it. <laughs> just listen. Trust me. Trust me. So, in the midst of, I don't know what I'm going to do, we go to the grocery store, and one of the things that Beth is in the midst of doing and trying to punt is she's going to go to the Dollar Tree to see what she can get together because she's not going to have the supplies because you, I mean, I didn't go in with her to the Dollar Tree. She comes back to the car. She comes back to the car, and her countenance is totally different, and she says, Chris, God totally just showed up, and God has totally humbled me. She went to the dollar, dollar store, went to get the stuff that she was getting. She went in line, and as she's in line, the person who's bringing up the stuff starts a conversation with her, basically finds out that she's a children's ministry director and works at the church, and begins by with, what's a Lutheran? What's a Lutheran becomes what's a Protestant, what's a Protestant becomes what's a Christian, and the next thing you know, because there's no one else in line, no one else in the store, they're having this full-on conversation about God, his kingdom, and coming and being part of our community. 
Now, mind you, from my wife's standpoint, darn UPS, didn't deliver the package, left a sign, they didn't, obviously don't read, got to go to Dollar Tree, and initially she said when she went into Dollar Tree, she's like, look, man, I got, I got a lot of time to talk right now. I got, I, you don't understand how behind I am. But do you see what I'm talking about? Providence. God at work in the midst of it and a glimpse of it. I don't know how it plays out. I don't think that person's been here today or out of the service. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that we have these moments in the midst of the very places that we often don't seek to look to for them. And isn't that ironic? We profess every single week. When we, what we celebrate at Christmas and at Easter, think about this. One of the things that we celebrate about our God is our God shows up in the most unexpected places. He shows up in a manger in Bethlehem and he shows up on a cross at Calvary. That's what we testify, that our God is the God of the unexpected. And yet, in our daily lives, that's the last place we look for him. In our daily lives, when we get distractions, we get delays, interruptions, we get ticked, we get annoyed, frustrated, we never stop to think that that may be the very, very place that God is actually revealing himself and at work. That's what I'm trying to say. I gave you homework last week. Not grading it. Don't know if you did it. I asked you to reflect on God's providence in your life. Many people came to me and said, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to reflect on God's providence. How do I recognize it? I've given you this morning, or I should say scripture has given us, another piece of the puzzle. Look back upon your life and start to pay attention to those moments in your life that you thought were just coincidences. Look back upon your life on those things that you thought, that was weird. Just coincidences. And I'm going to tell you, when you start to look back in that way, not everything, remember, not everything, but there are things that you're going to say, you know what, there's something that's more than just a coincidence. And you're going to begin to see God's providence at work. And why that, again, is so important in looking back is it's going to change how you look at your present and at your future. I'm here to stand before you. If we had time, I, I, I could tell you what this paradigm shift has meant to me. I don't believe, by and large, in coincidences anymore. I believe in providence. The very fact, and this is no joke, that I'm married to the woman I'm married to is an act of providence. Let me tell you my story, let alone how I dressed when I was in junior high and high school. Let me tell you my story. <laughs> I believe the fact that I'm a pastor, that I'm in this career, that I am where I am is an act of providence. Let me tell you that story. The very fact that I'm here, and it's ironic we're voting on this today, that I'm serving as your pastor, that I got called to this church, I see an amazing series of coincidences. No, I see providence. Beloved, through the story of God's covenant people in Esther, we learn not to question God's providence. We are taught to assume it. The reign of his kingdom in our everyday lives. It's, it's great. The Jewish festival that celebrates the story, you probably know this, is called Purim. And it comes from the word you heard Steve talk about, the word for the lot that Haman used to supposedly decide the fate of the Jews. Lot, pur, is the word pur, purim. And what's great about this is that so many of us live like Haman, like Haman, just inside the church and outside the church. So many of us live like Haman, looking to chance, thinking we hold, thinking we roll the dice in our hands, that we decide our fates, that we are the authors of our destiny. But people of faith know better. Purim, Dice Day. It's celebrated even to this day among the Jewish community. And it's a day for thinking about the lot that's cast. Thinking about that's how man thinks. That it's all about chance. And it's a day that's about remembering that if life is nothing more than a dice game, and I'm not saying it is, but if life is nothing more than a dice game, God is the one who decides how they fall. Nothing just happens when it comes to our God. God is behind it all. That's living out of the awareness of God's providence. 
That's seeing your life, my life, our world with the eyes of faith. Choosing to see God's hand in the things that happen. In the events that other people just dismiss as good luck. Daring to stop and point and say at certain moments, moments for which there's no other possibility or answer, moments when the hairs on the back of our neck go up, when we have that feeling in our gut, moments we're going to encounter next week in chapter 4, when we stop and dare to point and say, that was more than just a coincidence. So beloved, my word to you, the word of the Lord is, pay attention to the hiccups. Pay attention to the hiccups. Don't get flustered by the distractions. Don't get mad at the interruptions. Because you might just see the Lord winking back at you. Amen? Amen. Amen.